All right, so we are in the middle of a sermon series right now uh, that's based upon the Proverbs, and it's called A Life Well Lived, A Life Well Lived. And part of the reason that we're calling uh, this series A Life Well Lived is because that's precisely what the Proverbs, and it's what the Ten Commandments seeks to do as well. If you look sort of at the second and third levels of what's behind the Ten Commandments or behind the Proverbs, what you see is that what they're telling you is they're telling you how to experience holistic restoration. Because part of what we believe is that um, as human beings, there was this a time where we chose not to follow God and instead to, to follow our own way. And as a result, there's all this brokenness that has followed. We call that sin, essentially. And so as you read the book of Proverbs, what you see is there are really two ways that are outlined, two paths that are outlined. And one of the paths is um, the path of wisdom or trusting in God. And, uh, and ultimately what you see is you read the Proverbs over and over and over again, God says, if you live life my way, by the way, I'm the one that designed reality, I'm the one that designed humanity and relationships, but if you live life my way, then it leads to peace, right, instead of chaos. And uh, it's called the way of wisdom. Now, the other way that's highlighted in the book of Proverbs is, uh, is ultimately the way of trusting in ourselves, basically saying, you know what, I'm going to do this thing my way. I'm going to figure it out and do it the way that I think is best. And the Proverbs very clearly calls that the way of foolishness. And in fact, if you look at the way that the Proverbs is outlined, there's this contrast between how God's way leads to peace and living life our way leads to chaos, right? There's very little argument I think you could make about that. If you take a look at the Proverbs, you could say, well, yeah, lying, gossip, um, losing our temper with one another, that, that leads to chaos. It really does. And so that's very much what the book of Proverbs is about, these two ways of living. And ultimately, if we choose to live life according to God's law, his standards, his wisdom, then it's a life well lived. And ultimately, this book of Proverbs was written really in, for all practical purposes for all of the people of Israel, and uh, by virtue of that for us as well to, again, to experience holistic uh, restoration. Let's take a moment, and we're going to pray. And, uh, and then after I pray, we're gonna, I'm going to lead us into a little illustration. But today we're going to be talking about Proverbs and speech or our language, the power of our language. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, that you didn't leave us in the dark uh, about who you are or about who we are. And Father, instead you sent your son Jesus to be a light, to reveal to us um, that you're a good father and that your son Jesus is our savior and that frankly we are in need of redemption, that we're in need of restoration. And so Father, I pray that we would hear um, the words of scripture today and that we would see the example of your son Jesus and, uh, and that this process of restoration would either begin or would continue, um, not as a way for us to be saved, uh, but rather as a way for us um, to really flourish as the human beings that you created us to be. We pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we have a little video clip I'm going to show you in two seconds. Um, but before I show you, let me, let me ask you this question really quickly. Just theoretically, theoretically, if a jaguar and a crocodile were to fight on the edge of a river and maybe in the water a little bit, who would win? Like which of those two creatures is the most powerful? Just think about that for a second. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Crocodile, jaguar, who wins on the edge of a river? Let's just let this video clip show you really quickly. By the way, for children in the, in the crowd today, they're just playing hide and seek and tag. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Okay, so A, maybe it's just because I'm a guy, but I think that's the coolest, first of all. It's like a jaguar fighting a crocodile. I mean, that doesn't get more cool than that. And the fact that the jaguar went through the water to get the crocodile, awesome, like so cool. Children in the room, again, they were just playing tag. Anyway, 
So, the, and you're probably asking, why is that relevant? Well, the reason it's relevant to me is because the first time I saw it, you know, you think about a jaguar, and you're like, you know, a jaguar is like a, a stealth creature, right? You saw it sneaking up to the, you know, the crocodile or whatever. So they are stealthy. And you realize they're powerful, right? Because they catch their prey. Sometimes they, you know, drag them up into a tree. But I don't know if you heard there, because the guy's accent was a little funny, but it was an eight-foot crocodile, right? Eight feet long. And so you know a jaguar is powerful, but did you have any idea that it was that powerful, right? Just that's amazingly powerful. It just picked up that crocodile, carried it into the water, and swam across the water like no big deal. It was amazingly powerful, right? And so the illustration is this. The illustration is we know that our words are powerful, right? We, we know they make a difference maybe in the lives of our children, maybe in the life of our spouse, maybe in the lives of the people that we work with or that work for us. We know our words are powerful, but I think what the book of Proverbs clarifies is that our words are actually more powerful than we realize, right? They're much more powerful. They have the power either to do great good or our words have the power to do great harm, right? And that comes out very clear, not only in the Proverbs, but through all of Scripture. Proverbs does say this, and it's not going to be found um, on the screen, but Proverbs says in uh, Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue of the tongue. Our words are powerful, right? They have the ability and the power to do great good or great harm. Now, there, the, the Proverbs is loaded with lots of language and lots of teaching on our, on our language, our speech, our words, and so I can only focus on a couple things. And so I'm going to focus very quickly on a couple of the things that the Proverbs says our, pow- our words have the power to do in terms of the goodness they have the power to do. Uh, and again, what I'm going to do is instead of just telling you how our words can be powerful for good, I'm going to show you a quick clip in just a moment. Now, I don't know how many of you guys remember Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders was a great um, football player, played in the NFL for years, came out of uh, Florida State, ran one of the fastest 40s ever, um, was basically this a lockdown corner, which meant that the opposing quarterbacks just don't ever throw to him. He also ran kick returns and set the uh, NFL record for kick returns run back for touchdowns. So, but what's interesting is during his career as an NFL player, he was a very, and he would have said this, a very worldly guy right? He was all about making money and sort of experiencing the pleasures that his fame and wealth had to offer. And there was a point in his life where he made a decision to really follow God, to follow Christ, and it completely altered his course of life. So much so that now he spends uh, his time discipling and shepherding and speaking into the lives of professional athletes, but also uh, younger college athletes as well. And he usually focuses on to be frank, usually focuses on African-American kids that grow up in really tough homes. I was watching the NFL draft a couple, um, I guess maybe a month or so ago now. It was so interesting to watch him. Deion Sanders is up on stage. This guy, you know, this 19, 20, 21-year-old kid would get drafted. And uh, they, you know, Roger Goodell would come out and, you know, put a hat on the kid's head and they would hold a jersey up. And again, these are kids that, you know, from all over America, from all sorts of backgrounds and lifestyles and healthy homes and unhealthy homes, but every now and then with one of the kids, it was clear that Deion Sanders had a relationship with that kid already, and I watched as time after time, uh, they would go um, across the stage to be interviewed on TV, and, uh, and Deion Sanders would put his arm around a kid's shoulder, give him a big hug, and he would say the same thing to these kids. He would say, I'm proud of you. Man, I'm so proud of you, and you would see these kids, and they would begin to cry. Their eyes would fill up with tears because so many of them had grown up in homes without fathers, uh, maybe without mothers, and with just chaos and brokenness. And what they longed to hear were the power of those words, I love you, I'm proud of you. We see uh, that, we see Dion sort of in action here in just a moment 
in this clip that I'm going to show you, he's actually talking to a young man named Devin Hester who has just broken uh, his record for the number of kickoffs returned for a touchdown. So just watch this brief clip and see the power of his words. So I don't know if you could tell in the clip there, it's a little hazy, but one, you know, Dion's emotional, and he's proud of this young man that he's discipled, and he puts his arm on him, and he says, I'm, you know, I love you, man. I'm so proud of you as a father. I'm so, you know, proud of you um, as a man. I'm so proud of you as a husband. And you can just see Devin Hester, you know, just starts to get emotional on stage. And then Devin Hester later in that little clip says, and the text that you send me, he said, I want you to know I share those with my friends. In other words, this discipleship is ongoing where, um, uh, Dion actually texts Devin Hester as well as some other athletes as well. And uh, his goal is to use his words um, to build these young men up, right? Uh, and again, a lot of these guys come from really harsh, difficult backgrounds. And the stories of all the people that Dion has loved and mentored and discipled is really a long list of very famous and very harsh. Some of the guys are really harsh and hardened guys, but it shows the power of his words, right? And that's part of, again, what Proverbs tells us is our words are more powerful then we realize our words have the power to give health, emotional health, for example. I'm going to read just a chunk of these verses. Again, the Proverbs is loaded with verses on all of these things, and so I'm just going to pick and choose a couple. But Proverbs 12, verse 25 says this, Worry weighs a person down, an encouraging word cheers a person up. And so our words can be used for something as simple as cheering someone who is uh, struggling with anxiety or somebody who's worried or somebody who's depressed, right? An encouraging word, simple, something as simple as that, can cheer a person up, emotional health. Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing, right? We know that one of the things that counselors do and pastors do and parents do and loving mentors do is they speak truth into the lives of people um, who've been torn down by uh, situations or torn down by experiences or torn down by the words of the very people that were supposed to love them and build them up and what a good counselor or pastor or mentor does is uh, uses their words to bring healing, right? Emotional, psychological healing to people. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 24, pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, right? And health to the bones. In other words, the Proverbs have the ability to give, to bestow, to build into people who are broken down emotional health. That makes sense? Our words are more powerful than we realize. You can see it right there with Dion just a moment ago. So, so how, do we, how do we apply some of these things? Very quickly, I'm going to give very, very particular um, ways in which to apply these things. So usually I would tell you, don't take notes during my sermons. It's a waste of time, right? But I'll tell you on this one, actually, you probably could take notes. And it's not because they're um, the greatest spiritual truths ever, but these are things you can actually apply very easily. So uh, what do you do? One of the things that I would recommend, and maybe some of the parents in this room would agree, catch your children doing something right Right, we catch them doing stuff wrong all the time, yeah? Catch your children doing something right and praise them, right? Psychologists will say that our positive um, and encouraging words to our negative words should really be either a three-to-one ratio or as much as a five-to-one ratio. In other words, uh, we need to spend much more time and energy praising our children, and that ratio is pretty important. I had a soccer coach that I played for for four years that believed in the 100 to 1 ratio, 100 negative comments to one positive comment. And I'm not going to tell you who he was, but I'll tell you this. I can remember the three times, and I started for four years. I can remember the three times he said something positive to me. I'll tell you right now. And so, again, the power of these positive words is huge. Catch your children doing something right and praise them, all right? Make sure that that ratio 
it would be wise to let that ratio exist. What else? What else does it look like to bring emotional health through our words? Find a friend or a coworker, right? And find something that you respect and admire about them and let them know. Tell them with your words. In fact, be specific. Compliments um, or our words are very much like gifts. Uh, gifts are important and words are both important as well when they demonstrate that we know somebody better than they know themselves or we demonstrate in a compliment that we've really been paying attention to them. You know, obviously people are worried about flattery, right, that comes across as sort of empty praise, but when you're specific with your praise of, again, a friend or a coworker uh, about something you respect or admire about them, that's ultimately meaningful, right? Last thing, one more thing in terms of emotional health and words. Say thank you a lot, right? Say thank you often, right? So if you're a kid in the room this morning, a young person, you know, it would be really nice for you to tell your mom, hey, mom, thank you for making dinner, right? Thank you for taking care of our home. Thank you for working in order to provide for us. Say thanks to your mom. Um, maybe when your husband comes home from work, maybe you can say thank you for working, right? Uh, statistics show that 80% of men hate their jobs, right? And so that means that probably if that statistic is true in this room, there are a lot of you who don't love what you do, but you do it to provide for your family, right? One of the ways you can build emotional health into someone is to say thank you for being willing to work to provide for and take care of our family. You could say thank you to your boss, right? That would be weird. But you could say thank you for leading this corporation. Thank you for leading this company. Thank you for leading us. Your words are more powerful than you realize, and you can use them to see emotional health built into people that you know, people that you love. Our words also have the ability to create relational peace, right? Relational peace. Again, a couple more verses. And again, there's plenty of these in the Proverbs. Uh, but Proverbs 15.1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 25, verse 15, patience can persuade a prince, and soft speech can crush strong opposition. So um, I have gotten to a point in my life where I actually like folding laundry. Um, the reason that I like it is because I can turn on Netflix and watch a documentary while I'm folding laundry. So it's great, killing two birds with one stone. And I'm kind of oblivious. To that. I'm, sometimes I'm sorry when the laundry runs out, because I'm like, ah, oh, there's 24 minutes left in the documentary. Anyway, but I'll fold laundry and, you know, watch documentary. So this past week, I watched a documentary um, on the South African uh, rugby team that won the World Cup uh, right after Nelson Mandela was um, released from uh, Robben Island, the prison where he was kept for 27 years. Now, for those of you who don't remember, um, South Africa li lived under apartheid for uh, years and years. And uh, the reason that Mandela had been imprisoned is that he sought through peaceful means uh, to overthrow the government and to bring a new government into power. So they placed him uh, in jail on Robben Island for 27 years. And then, due to um, other countries sort of weighing in on the situation, he was released from prison. And they actually, the people of South Africa, elected him uh, to be the president of South Africa. It was interesting as they interviewed these various people who had heard about Nelson Mandela, South Africans, uh, both uh, from, of African uh, Anglo descent, but also African descent. Um, these various people talked about it, and they said, you know what, if I had been locked up in jail for 27 years, I'd have been furious. I, I would have wanted to take revenge on the people that put me there. I would have wanted to take revenge on uh, the white Afrikaners that had placed me in jail. And yet Nelson Mandela came out, and it showed various clips of him speaking to these angry crowds of African people, the, the black African people, 
And each time, the crowd was angry, and they wanted to be sort of act out in violence. They wanted to rebel against these white people that had mistreated them all the years. And over and over again, it showed Nelson Mandela, who had sort of this quiet and soft demeanor, saying, we need to forgive our brothers, right? We need to show them mercy. We need to show them grace. It's the only way that we're ever going to experience peace. And of course, the culmination of the story is that uh, the South African rugby team wins the World Cup and blacks and whites celebrate together. And an entire sort of trajectory of South Africa was changed because of the peace that Nelson Mandela offered through his words. Our words are powerful. They're more powerful than we realize. They can create peace, relational peace. And so again, how do we apply this lesson? A couple of things. Again, you can take notes on this. This is good stuff, actually, I promise. One, when someone confronts you, when your child confronts you, uh, when your husband confronts you, when your boss confronts you, when somebody confronts you, um, it's our tendency to get defensive right away, right, and maybe attack back because we're really afraid of, you know, being seen and known for who we really are. And so when somebody confronts you, rather than attacking back or rather than becoming defensive, listen well, right? Listen to what that person is saying, right? Take time to really hear what they're saying. They may be absolutely wrong, right? But they also might be absolutely right. Listen well and let them know that you've heard what they said. You may even want to repeat back to them what they said in order to make sure that you've gotten it right, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, there is a, uh, I have a relationship with a certain person um, who's 11 years old that may or may not be in this room right now. Anyway, um, who maybe needs a dollar for this illustration. But this person occasionally will become, you know, lose their temper and become, you know, passionate about something. And one of the things that I've found that is just works so well is to do what I'm talking about here, to really listen. And rather than to say, hey, quit losing your temper, you know, quit being so furious, quit being so frustrated, quit being so impassioned. And instead for me to go, hey, man, you know, calm down a little bit, but, but tell me what it is that's frustrating you. And, you know, he'll tell me what it is that's frustrating him. And I'll say, well, is it kind of this? And he'll say, yeah, yeah, it's this. And then I'll say, man, I can totally understand why that bothers you. And it's just interesting to sort of watch this thermometer go down, 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 down. And not only um, does the chaos dissipate and the anger dissipate, but at the same time, this person feels heard, right? They feel cared for, right? And not only that, but they feel validated. Like, yeah, I totally understand why you'd be so frustrated, why you'd be so angry about that, right? I mean, just imagine being a husband who repeatedly comes home late. If you really hear your wife and listen to her, then you might actually end up by saying, you know what, I can totally understand why it is that when I'm late, it seems like I don't value you, or I don't love you, or I don't value your time. What a different ending to a challenging conversation. When you confront someone, so that's when somebody confronts you, but when you confront someone, this is Ephesians, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. It is so easy to speak the truth in anger. I'm a master at that. You know, I can do that very easily. But again, we're told to speak the truth in love. It's easy to speak the truth in disgust. You know, I don't like that person anyway, right? I don't value them as a human, so I can speak very directly with them, right? You can speak the truth in manipulation, right? Because you're, you're gonna tell somebody exactly what you think because you wanna manipulate them into a certain, you know, particular behavior or a certain decision, right? But guess what? People can tell when you don't speak the truth in love, right? They, they will feel manipulated, right? They will feel condemned or they will feel contempt, right? And so not only can they tell, but your heart can tell as well. This is ultimately not just about them, but it's about you 
as well. It's about creating relational peace with your words. And one more piece of advice. Um, say I'm sorry, right? Say I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have a relationship with someone who is a, you know, I've been in a relationship with quite a while now. And one of the things that I know about this person is that they don't ever say the words, I'm sorry, right? And this is a good person. It's a kind person. It's a loving person. But the words, I'm sorry, never come out of their mouth. Does that make sense? It's dangerous. I mean, it's really destructive, honestly. Uh, I have another relationship with the relationship I have with my father. Um, my dad had a kind of a bad temper, right? He, he could be critical. Um, he didn't get the five-to-one ratio right. In fact, he may have gotten some other ratios um, more precisely. But one of the things my dad did a great job of is when he would um, lose his temper with me or when he would do something that was um, inappropriate relationally, he was actually really good about coming into my bedroom at night and saying, you know, buddy, when I lost my temper with you, I shouldn't have done that, and I'm sorry, right? The words I'm sorry are really powerful. In fact, sometimes the ability to say I'm sorry, maybe to a child or to a spouse or to a coworker, your opportunity to say I'm sorry when you've utterly dropped the ball or failed someone can actually be more powerful than the initial wrong. Does that make sense? Your, your modeling or your ability to say I'm sorry can actually be more powerful than the initial wrong. So say I'm sorry. Our words have the, the power to do great good. They really do. They also have the power to do great harm. Let me take one moment um, and sort of tell a quick story. I don't know how many of you guys like Mythbusters. There's a TV show called Mythbusters where these two guys will take sort of a commonly held myth. They'll test that myth, see if it holds water, if it doesn't. And uh, one of the things that happened on an episode back in 2011, this is from a, uh, a magazine called San Francisco Gate, but um, they uh, did an experiment with a cannonball. I'm just going to read sort of the, the piece from the article. It says this, a crew from the TV show Mythbusters was staging an experiment in the town of Dublin, California. They were trying to fire a cannonball into some large water containers at a bomb disposal range. Unfortunately, the Mythbusters crew seriously underestimated the dangerous power of a stray cannonball. Okay? And you know where I'm going to this. This is an illustration. The cantaloupe-sized cannonball missed the water, tore through a cinder block wall, skipped off a hillside, and flew some 700 yards east. But that didn't end the damage. The cannonball bounced in front of a home on a quiet street, ripped through the front door, raced up the stairs, and blasted through a bedroom. Then it exited the house, leaving a perfectly round hole in the stucco, crossed a six-lane uh, road, took out several tiles from the roof of a home on Bellevue Circle, and finally slammed into a family's beige Toyota minivan in a driveway on Springdale Drive. This is, so again, San Francisco Gate Magazine, 2011, right? Regarding the power of the stray cannonball, the owner of the minivan said, it's shocking anything could have happened a spokesman for the local sheriff's department also commented, crazy, crazy, crazy. You wouldn't think it was possible, right? And so, again, the point is here that the power of the stray cannonball did all this chaos. And the, the, the correlation is that our words can do the same thing. Our words are more powerful than we realize. They can create chaos. They can create harm more than we ever, ever know or understand. There's a man named Paolo Coelho who wrote uh, The Alchemist. And uh, he has this quote, which I'm going to read very quickly. He says this, Of all the weapons of destruction that man could invent, the most terrible and the most powerful was the word. Daggers and spears left traces of blood. Arrows could be seen at a distance. Poisons were detected in the end and avoided 
but the word managed to destroy without leaving clues, right? Right? Uh, and all God's introverts said, amen, right? Our words are more powerful than we realize for good, but also for harm. Our words have the ability, the power to harm relationships. I'm going to read again through some Proverbs here. Evil words destroy one's friends. Wise discernment rescues the godly. That word evil right there means to be soiled, to be impure. Just as damaging as a madman shooting a lethal weapon as someone who lies to a friend and then says, I was only joking. A perverse person, that word perverse right there actually means um, duplicitous in your speech. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 17, 9, disregarding another person's faults preserves love. Telling about them separates close friends. If you point out every failing and uh, every fault, then you're not going to have very many friends. That's not, again, that ratio isn't going to work. Sometimes the best thing is, is what you don't say. There's a man named Jack Schaefer um, who is a behavioral analyst for the FBI, also has his PhD in psychology. He's written a book called The Like Switch. And in it, I'm going to read a section where he talks about the power of our words, and especially as he witnessed as an FBI analyst. He says this, words cannot change reality, but they can change how people perceive reality. Words create filters through which people view the world around them. A single word can make the difference between liking a person and disliking that person. If a friend describes the person you're about to meet for the first time as untrustworthy, you'll be predisposed to view that person as untrustworthy. Regardless of the person's actual level of trustworthiness, the single word untrustworthy creates a filter or primacy effect, I think is the psychological term, that predisposes you to view the person you're about to meet as untrustworthy. Thereafter, you will tend to view everything that person says or does as untrustworthy. In other words, a simple word, right? A simple word that you say about someone else can shape completely the way that other people see or view or Uh, experience that person. He goes on to say this, conversely, if before meeting a person for the first time, a friend tells you that the person you're about to meet is friendly, then you'll likely view that person as friendly, regardless of the person's degree of friendliness. If you meet the friendly person several times and do not experience friendliness, then you'll tend to excuse away the unfriendly behavior. Such excuses might include, he must be having a bad day, or I must have caught her at a bad time, or Everybody has a bad day once in a while. An unfriendly person initially described as friendly gains an advantage from positive primacy because people tend to allow the unfriendly person multiple opportunities to demonstrate friendliness despite numerous displays of unfriendly behavior, right? What he's saying here is, and again, he's saying this as an FBI analyst, he's saying our words really make all the difference in the world, world, again, for good but unfortunately also for ill, for harm, right? And so again, what do we do? Like how do we, how do we manage our words? How do we care for our words knowing that they're this powerful, that they have the power to create chaos, to create harm? One of the things that we began, uh, have begun practicing in our house um, over the last year is to run our speech through the following filter. And again, I would recommend that you write this down. Before you get ready to say something, particularly something that you know might be difficult, a difficult thing to say, ask these three questions. One, is it true, right? It's what I'm about ready to say, is it true, right? And then after that, after asking if it's true, ask, is it wise, right? Is this really a good time for me to bring this up to my friend? Is this really the best time for me to bring this up to my wife? Is this the best time 
for me to bring this up to my child on the way to school, right? Is it true? Is it wise? And is it loving? Again, speaking the truth in love. Are you saying what you're saying because you really love that other person? Or are you saying what you're saying because you really have a desired outcome, right? Very different. Is it true? Is it wise? Is it loving? A next uh, question would be this. Is what I'm about to say going to honor God? Is, this, is what I'm about to say going to honor God? Is what I'm about to say going to create peace? Or is it going to create chaos, right? Is it going to create peace? Or is it going to create chaos? And by the way, that doesn't mean that you don't say something hard because sometimes you have to say something hard in order to achieve real peace, right? That's what being a peacemaker is, not being a peacekeeper. So it means sometimes saying difficult things, right? There's a man named Henry Cloud who's a counselor, uh, counsels about relationships. He wrote a book called Safe People. The following quote is from him. He says this, God uses people not only to nurture us, but also to open our eyes to sins, selfishness, and denial in us. Love also means saying, I hold this against you, as Jesus did when he confronted the churches. In other words, sometimes we use our speech to confront people in love and to say, I can't let you off the hook about this, right? Because if, if I don't mention it, then you're going to continue to sort of live in this sin. He goes on to say, being confronted on character issues isn't pleasant. It hurts our self-image. It humbles us, but it doesn't harm us. Loving confrontations protect us from our blindness and self-destructiveness, right? And so ultimately, again, our words uh, sometimes require that we say hard things in love. Not only do our words have the uh, sort of the power of harming relationships, but our words have the power of harming us as well. Again, a couple more verses. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Again, what Proverbs is doing here is Proverbs is saying, I want to help you not be that person. I want to help you be a healthy person. And if you look here, this, uh, the fool's careless speech, careless words, uh, not only can lead to a fight, they might lead to a beating, they might lead to his individual ruin or her individual ruin, but they l at least lead into a snare, right? We know that, that careless words often lead to feeling trapped, right? Whether it's a lie that we've told uh, or something simply that we said that we wish we hadn't have said, all of a sudden you feel, you feel trapped. Uh, Proverbs 21 says this, if you keep your mouth shut, you will stay out of trouble, right? Um, I have a good friend who likes to, to quote that proverb to me occasionally. Um, I don't know why. I have no idea why they're saying that. Anyway, Proverbs 13.3, those who control their tongue will have a long life. A quick retort can ruin everything. Again, our words not only have the power to harm our relationships, they have the power to harm us. Listen to what James chapter 3 says. James 3 says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of, or the entire course of life, right? Part of what James is saying there in that passage is he's echoing what the proverb says, which is that our words not only have the power to harm 
other people, our words are going to have the power to harm and maybe even destroy us as well. Now, let me, I'm going to read the following section here, by the way, because I, I wrote it with some intentionality. And let me just say this. We live in a world that rewards both ends of the speaking spectrum. Let me outline that. So we live in a world that rewards both ends of the speaking spectrum. We reward coaches and politicians and movie stars for essentially saying nothing, right? That's called coach speak. It's when you put the mic in front of the coach and he goes, well, we worked hard out there and yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. I don't even listen to interviews on SanDiegoChargers.com when they interview the coach because he doesn't ever say anything, right? He just always says what he's supposed to say, right? He, and again, it's saying nothing. And so we reward these people for saying nothing or at least nothing risky, simply parroting the party line of the echo chamber, right? Does that make sense? Right, that, that behavior is rewarded. And we reward radio and TV hosts, other politicians, and select celebrities for exactly the opposite, right? We reward people for unfiltered vitriol, right? So if you ever listen to, you know, to talk radio or sports talk radio, you know that oftentimes the reason they have these shows is because what they're being rewarded for is this unfiltered anger and vitriol. We, our culture rewards both ends of the spectrum. People who say absolutely nothing except what they think their own echo chamber is going to agree with or people who just sort of, you know, sort of blow up verbally all over people. The Proverbs, however, gives us a much more balanced and healthy view of our speech. Essentially, we are told to courageously speak when others remain silent. And we're told wisely to hold our tongues when others are quick to comment, right? Proverbs warns us against flattery, gossip, slander, lying, verbal outbursts of anger, careless and perverse speech. And simultaneously, the Proverbs teaches us to use our speech to create peace instead of discord to build others up instead of tearing them down, to stand for the truth against falsehood, and to respond in gentleness when sarcasm or anger seems to be much more satisfying and maybe even more appropriate sometimes, right? That's what our world does with language, and the Proverbs basically says there's another way. The question, however, is where is Jesus in all of this? Because I think everything I've said so far is something that lots of Muslims would go, Check, I'm with you. Lots of Jewish people would go, I'm with you. Right, lots of humanists would say, I'm on board with all, everything you've said so far, I'm good with all that. But again, what difference does Jesus make? How did Jesus use his words? Jesus used his words to bring peace out of chaos. Listen to the words of Matthew 8. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, that is Jesus, was asleep. And they, that is the disciples, went and awoke him, saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing, And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Right? Jesus used his words to bring peace out of chaos. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King. Right? Jesus used his words to heal. Listen to the words of Luke 5. When Jesus was in one of the towns, there came a man who was full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus used his words to heal. Jesus used his words to tell us to love one another. Listen to the words of John 15 and Matthew 5. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, right? Sacrificial love. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? I mean, that was, is earth shattering to hear what Jesus is telling us in that passage about not only loving our brothers and sisters, but loving our enemies, loving people who have harmed us. And then finally, the most powerful thing that Jesus did was that Jesus used his words to forgive you and to forgive me, right? On the cross, in Luke chapter 23, we read Jesus' response to the crowds who had just betrayed him and crucified him and accused him falsely. And he said this, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? Jesus used his words to forgive us. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we understand to some degree um, that what is being offered to us, um, not only in the book of Proverbs, but throughout the words of Scripture, and and obviously most clearly in your son Jesus, um, is a very different, a, a very much more complex, complicated, nuanced way of using our words. Father, we, we believe that our words are more powerful than we ever really realized, uh, not only to do good, but also to do harm. And so, Father, even as we think about the harm that our words have done, I pray that we would uh, receive the forgiveness that your son Jesus offered us for the gossip and the slander and the lying that we have done today and this past week and habitually in relationships, Father. I pray that we would receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers us but Father, I also um, pray that, uh, that you um, would give us the ability to use our words for good. Father, that you would give us your Holy Spirit um, to know when we would use a word to cheer someone up. I pray that you would give us your spirit to know when it is that we should hold our tongues. I pray that you, should, you would give us your Holy Spirit to enable us to know uh, when it's the right time um, to, uh, to, to talk to someone about their brokenness and the, their sin, Father. But give us your Holy Spirit uh, to know when it's true and when it's wise and when it's loving to do so. And Father, I pray that as you um, give us your Holy Spirit and you give us the strength to use our words uh, to see your kingdom come, Father, I pray that that would happen, that we would see peace, that we would see joy, and that we would see wholeness not only in us, uh, but in um, the relationships that surround us as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.